Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you saying? Word up. That. Biblical, biblical, theology, theology, study, the person of God, attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet, so please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology, that phrase alone that gives some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough, uh-huh. just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication. A work of art from Genesis to Revelation. From God's creation to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses Who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes So clever we behold his endeavors unfold The greatest story ever told The Christian life is a difficult odyssey The faithful are a statistical anomaly The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically That's why we need that biblical theology Lord God, deliver us from apostasy The human heart is given to idolatry The situation is critical, we got See the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word providing us correction yeah. and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our affections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our death, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. another edition of Theology Matters. I am your host, Devin Palou, and we are live 
and are going to be doing our show today. We're going to be doing our series on atheism, kind of fin- finishing up. Uh, got one more show in the series this week where we're going to have Shandon Guthrie come on next Thursday. And uh, we're going to be doing a thing on philosophy and the Christian. And it's going to be going to be a great show. Looking forward to to that for sure. Looking at the different branches of philosophy and exactly how it uh, uh, the Christian is related, you know, and should care about some of those uh, philosophical issues. So you guys don't want to miss next week's show. Today we're going to have a gentleman, Bruce Pelosi, on. He is uh, staff apologist with Apologetics.com. And he's been on there several times. You can hear some of his shows. Uh, he's he's very good, very knowledgeable in uh, Thomas Aquinas and some of his works, and uh, promises to be a, a very good show. So we're gonna we're gonna look at uh, some arguments today for the existence of God. And then last week, uh, if you guys missed it, we had Neil Shenby on, and uh, he is a brilliant brilliant guy. And uh, we looked at whether atheism could explain reality, truth, uh, those type of properties. So ought to be a great show. Definitely looking forward to it. And uh, with that being said, I've got uh, guests we're going to bring on for the first 15 minutes or 20 minutes of the show. And he, I ran across this page on Facebook called the Illogical Atheist, and uh, it's a good sh- it's a good Facebook page as it uh, deals with a lot of apologetic issues. Uh, they post some good articles, very good memes, that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, I ran across this page and thought others others really need to hear about this page. So, gentlemen, I'm bring, bringing on is is one of several moderators uh, on that page. So maybe we can get a few more of them on and kind of let them. Uh, tell their story. Uh, real quickly, before I bring him on, let me give out our Facebook page for those who are not familiar. Uh, Theology Matters with the Palouse, facebook.com. Uh, facebook.com slash Theology Matters with the Palouse, rather, had it backwards. And uh, we have a lot of our uh, podcasts on that show. And if you're, if you're kind of new to the show, if you're just start tuning in, uh, we basically, this show is set up to do uh, a lot of different topics on theology, apologetics, those type of issues. Um, we've had several debates on the show. Uh, we've had Matt Dillahunty from the Atheist Experience on and did a debate with uh, apologist John Ferrer um, on the existence of God. We did a uh, Mormon versus Orthodox Christian on the nature of God. And we've also done a Roman Catholic versus Protestant on Sola Scriptura debate that was also also very, very good. And so you don't want to miss that. Be sure to go tune in to our Facebook page, and you can get all of our podcasts on there. So with that being said, let me go ahead and, uh, and bring on our guest. Hey, Brian, are you there? Yes, I am, Devin. Nice to have you on the show, my friend. Thank you, man. It's very good to be here. I appreciate it. Not a problem at all. 
tell us uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. We haven't really got to we got to talk a few minutes here before the show, but not uh, not a whole lot. Uh, tell us about yourself. How did you uh, grow up, and did you grow up in the church, and how did you become a Christian, and, and some of that? Absolutely. Uh, well, my name is Brian. We spoke a little bit before the show. I'm from Alabama here. Uh, growing up. Growing up, I lived in a Christian household. Uh, th- that faith was always present. However, we weren't a church-going family. Uh, we were never vocal about it, or we never wore it on the outside. Uh, but it was just something where if you asked me if I believed in it, I would say uh, yes. But that was was kind of where it ended. Uh, so it was more of a marginalized, more of a marginalized faith. It was there, but it it was never one on the outside. Over the years, over the years, I sort of drifted towards agnosticism. As I started studying more uh, into the sciences, I got really involved in astronomy in the sixth grade, uh, reading the science books. Up through seventh and eighth grade, I started studying more into cosmology. I got really big into it. And I started to drift more into agnosticism. Uh, As time went on, I had a few Christian friends that they, they, it started the first time I went to church with them one day. It was a small community church that I went there. And like I said, prior to this, I kind of had it with me, but I was never really big in it. And from then on, from then on, I'm sorry if I'm kind of tripping over myself. This is my first interview. And so I'm no, bit, you're fine. You're, you're doing good. I just want to apologize. Your church and, a little messy. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Your yeah, church and you have a group of agnostics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they, they were longtime friends of mine since the one I knew from second grade. They were longtime friends of mine. And I went to church with them one time. And the pastor at that church was very was very, was very very down to earth. He wasn't your, your fire and brimstone pastor or your stage-bearing pastor because it was a small community church. And we talked right. a little bit. We talked about the faith and stuff like that. And uh, he was originally the first one that actually got me into apologetics the first time. And actually, that was actually the first time I actually heard about it, and I started studying wow. it. Yeah, I started reading into books by uh, C.S. Lewis. I started reading into books by him. started reading into things uh, like Aquinas and William Lane Craig. And it, it, really, it, it really got me into it. And I it start, started taking a new approach to the sciences, and that was when I got into philosophy, into the study of philosophy. And I started really taking a critical look at Christianity and my faith. And that, that's what sort of brought me, brought me back into it. That first time I was really exposed to it by the pastor of this church that I go to. And I still go to it today with my friends. I've been going to it for several years now. Uh, oh. I was saved. 16. That's when I finally made the commitment was when I was 16 and when I really decided to get deep into apologetics and actually study it. Great. That's 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 wonderful. How many just just curious how many years has has gone by since then? I uh, became a Christian when I was I became a serious Christian when I was 16. So about about 5 years I would say. About five years since okay. I really got serious about it. I got baptized long. I got baptized not long after I first started going to the church. A few months after I started, I got baptized. 
Yeah, and that's you know that's interesting. It's it's one of the one of the things we talk a lot about on the show is is uh, you know the desire to see pastors really engage uh, in Christian apologetics and wanting to you know wanting to see their their sheep equipped. You know, uh, we live in a culture that is just so anti-Christian and anti-thinking. And the Protestant church particularly, and I'm Protestant, you know, so I'm not uh, just just taking shots at Protestants. Um, you know, they just kind of run away from these issues. They've kind of just given up on science and philosophy and reason and, and these type of things. And I grew up in a home kind of somewhere like that as to where, you know, my father was a pastor, uh, but when you had some of these deep questions um, of evolution or science was a big issue for me, uh, trying to reconcile that with the Bible and the existence of God was just, it was just not even thought of. It was kind of take it, take it by faith. So I definitely am thankful for your pastor and commend your pastor. And, you know, we need, need more pastors that care about that kind of, that kind of Absolutely. stuff. So, so what do you, what are you doing? Uh, what are you doing now? Then you say you're, um, you been going to that church for a while? Are you in school or studying or? Yes, I've been going to that church for a while. Like I said, I started going to the church. Um, actually, before I was 16, I started going to it. I started getting committed to it when I was 16, and it wasn't long after that that I got baptized. And I've been going to the church ever since. I've really stuck with it. It's a small community church. It's not big at all. It's a, a rather small congregation. And so mm-hmm. you see a lot of the same faces every day. And the same group of friends that I mentioned originally introduced me to it, I still go there with. And we still do wow. missions together and various outreaches together. So it's it's really it's a blast. Have you been able to, to kind of talk to your other friends uh, that were Christians about apologetics and get them interested as well? Or what's what's some of the feedback when you uh, when you talk about apologetics to uh, to your friends around your own age? Do they seem to to be interested in it or? Most of the people I talk to about apologetics, uh, especially my friends, most of my most people have an openness to it. They're very interested in it, and it's it's they're curious about it. Um, bringing them to to do it that's that's the next step in it. I brought up apologetics with my pastor numerous times about it, and uh, several times I've even offered to possibly take part in a Sunday class of my own that teaches apologetics, and and various defenses of the faith. Not necessarily anything advanced, but just an overview of ways to answer popular level questions, such as, you know, why do we believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Or how do we answer people of other faiths and such like that? And I actually offered doing that. And I find that a lot of my friends, when I bring up apologetics to them, they're very, they're very curious about it. Because a lot of my friends, when I bring up apologetics and defending the faith like that, in a lot of ways, it's the first time they've really heard of that. The, like actually defending your faith through yeah. science and philosophy, and, it, and it's, it, they get really curious about it and they're very interested in it, which I think which I think is is very good that people are naturally interested in this kind of approach to it. And uh, you mentioned that we were going to be talking about a little bit of a, a bit a little bit of apologetics and how it's important and how it should be done. And I was going to yeah, mention about you know the, the state of the church and uh, the, the the very the dire need for apologetics that we need especially when raising up our kids for when they go into high school and through the university. And so I'm, I'm, very, I'm pleased to know that uh, most people are very curious about it, and most people are very open to apologetics. 
Yeah, I, I found the same thing. You know, it's, it's almost it's almost another avenue. You know, I remember, you know, working as a security guard a few years back, and I worked with a gentleman who was uh, he was a pretty big wig. He was a, he was one of the head of uh, something in in the government here in South Carolina, but. For whatever reason, I think just to keep busy, he wanted to. Uh, he worked part time as a security guard on the weekends, and uh, and he was a recovering addict. Uh, but he, uh, yeah, recovering addict, had grown up in a uh, Methodist home, and had always kind of had the Bible forced, uh, kind of forced on him. And so to try and talk about, you know, just bringing up the Bible and trying talking about. That uh, there just wasn't any interest at all, uh, but he did love science, and so I found that uh, you know apologetics was actually a really good way uh, to be able to get him thinking about some of these things. And uh, I remember I, I loaned him the video uh, DVD called The Privileged Planet, and uh, you know it's funny because uh, he watched that DVD, and even though he didn't you know, he didn't become a Christian. Uh, you know, that at that time, at least to my knowledge, he may be now, I don't know. Um, but he said, you know, you've got to show this video to your youth group. You've got to show them the, the, this video. Uh, you know, even then he could see the amazing design and he could see God's, you know, handiwork and creation. So apologetics is a, it really is a great tool to be able to, uh, you know, reach some people that you may not, you know, otherwise be able to reach. Uh, but to talk to us, uh, your view, your need, the, the need for apologetics and the state of the church. Talk to us a little bit about that in your kind of where you're from there and uh, where, you're, where you're from in Alabama. Absolutely. Uh, I mentioned that you know, apologetics is the field of study which helps us with questions such as why do, we, why do we believe that Jesus is the only way, how to answer people of other faiths. Questions like those are really big with our youth. Uh, they get hit with that going into high school, maybe even earlier, and they're constantly pressured with it up through the university. And many of the youth that we have leaving the church just in droves, a lot of that is driven by many of these questions that they can't seem to find answers for from their parents and from their, uh, from their pastors. And that's, I also want to mention that, that I don't want to just target the church with this, that it's also parents that need to be actively involved in apologetics and raising, in raising their kids. It's a lot of these questions such as evolution. You know, how does evolution fit with uh, the Christian worldview? How do we answer that? Uh, is the universe eternal? What if it's always been here? Questions like who created God and such. These are all popular level questions that carry a lot of weight with youth, and they're hit with these. And when they question their pastors about these or their parents about these, Oftentimes they're given very superficial answers. They're not they're, they're not given anything of real substance. Nothing that they can carry with them. Nothing that they can fight back against these objections with. And I think that apologetics is of absolute importance in equipping our youth to be able to counter many of these objections we face. I also believe that in many ways, um, I also believe that apologetics is is very much a biblical mandate. <clears throat> One of my favorite Bible verses, 1 Peter 3.15, uh, reads, But set Christ apart in your heart, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have, but do so with gentleness and respect. And uh, I find that very important because it commands us to always be able to give an answer. The word 
uh, reason in there, where we get the word apologetics from, is apologia, which is the Greek word that means a reason, defense. Right. Uh, Jesus commands us to love God with all our heart, strength, soul, and mind. Throughout the Bible, <clears throat> throughout the Bible, through the prophets, uh, we see reason defenses of the divine inspired word of God. It's not just a God said it, so you have to believe it. It's not that at all. Uh, and so I believe that apologetics is not only just a biblical mandate, something that we absolutely need to be involved in, but I believe that if we are going to train up our youth to be able to, if we're going to train up our youth to be Christians, we need to be able to equip them to answer some of these objections that they're faced with on a popular level. That's absolutely right. Very, very well said. You know, if, if they're going to be effective at all, you know, Frank Turek and his ministry cross-examined um, actually got to go through the, through the CIA training earlier this year, and one of the things they really pound home is 75% of all Christian kids who go to college the first year, they walk away from the faith. And it's not because of it, – it, it, is, it is because of intellectual doubt. You know, it really is. It's it's they're going in there. They're they're dealing with professors that are ripping apart the Bible, ripping apart the existence of God, and they go home. The students go home. You know, from from college, and they talk to their parents, and then the parents, well, you know, talk to the pastor, and the pastor can't seem to give any good answers uh, a lot of the time, and uh, it causes a crisis in faith. You know, we uh, we go to a uh, philosophy club here in Charlotte on second and fourth Sundays of the month and uh, you know we've been talking to several there's several most of them are atheists uh, agnostics and Unitarians I can't tell you how many of them I've talked to are former Southern Baptists who grew up in the church and just saw no you know no defense at all for the faith and it, it uh, you know it really hurt their faith so Absolutely. It's, uh, it's, it's a sad thing um, let's see. Talk to us a little bit about what uh, about your guys' Facebook page and what, what you guys are doing with that. Absolutely. Um, our Facebook page is the Illogical Atheist. We, we formed it back in February of this year. I actually wasn't the person who created it. It was, a, it was a friend of mine who created it, and he signed me on as the second admin. We created it back as a means of just another means of getting apologetics out to the masses in the, the best way we could at the time, which was through Facebook, since we were both active with it. Uh, originally, it started out with dual intentions. We were going to do it, we were going to deal strongly with apologetics, but we were also going to add a satirical approach to it, you know, such as through the use of memes and such, but in a lighthearted way. Sure. Over time, we sort of strayed away from that, from that end of it, and we started getting... We started using just strictly dealing with the apologetical side of the issue instead of dealing with satire. Um, so one interesting aspect of our page is that now we have four admins. The admin base is actually comprised of a variety of different views, which it's that way intentionally. Like, for instance, we have a theistic evolutionist as one of our admins, one of our admins is a is a leftist, is a progressive. Um, so we have we have various worldviews in our admin base, but at the same time we're all united by faith in Christ, and we do that just sure. to expose our audience with a diversity of views. 
you know, we post things on the page that we don't necessarily express our own opinions on it, but we'll post them on the page to encourage community discussion, which is another major aspect of our page and is one of the first things people notice when they come to our page is the fact that, the, that there's always a discussion going on something between numerous parties. And uh, so our page is just meant to be an open forum to people, for people to come to, no matter what their view is or their, ba or their background is. We have Christians from all different denominations. Uh, we have atheists. We have agnostics. We have uh, other faiths. We've had a few uh, Taoists on there. We have some Muslims. Uh, so we have a pretty wide audience, and it's really just an open forum for all people to come and share their views. But ultimately, it just deals with apologetics, um, giving people information about it, updating them with news concerning apologetics, and just defending the existence of God in a secular world and in a secular environment like Facebook. And that's really the purpose of our page. Brian, tell me about uh, tell us tell us about a few of the apologists who have uh, impacted you the most. Who are some of the guys that you enjoy reading and have had a lot of impact on you? Some of the apologists. Oh my gosh! Oh, um, one of my one the apologist that I first started reading that originally brought me to the faith was C.S. Lewis and his book Mere Christianity. That will always okay. be high on my list of favorites. And whenever I'm introducing yeah. someone or if I'm witnessing to someone, uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis is always one of the first books that I reference them to, to read, because it just gives a great view on Christianity, what we believe and why we believe it. Uh, William Lane Craig is another, is another apologist that I've been uh, reading and listening to. I've watched all of his debates, and he's a, he is a very... He's a very sophisticated and articulate man. Ravi Zacharias is another one that I read. Dr. N.T. Wright, Norman Greisler, Lee Strobel. Uh, they, all, they all have significant impacts on me. Sure. This if, if point, going I'm not... To... Oh, go ahead. I Sorry. didn't mean to cut you off. Go, go, go uh, right ahead. No, I didn't mean to cut you off. That's okay. I was, I was just going to mention that at this point, I don't think I can choose a favorite because they're all amazing. They all do wondrous works for the kingdom of God. They all do great works for their audiences. I mean, they, 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 just, they put everything into their ministries. They do it all, and just, I have the utmost respect for all of them. Uh, so if I just you think were, that... Yes? Yeah, if you, if you were going to recommend three or four books for people who are wanting to to get into apologetics and kind of get their feet wet, what are, what are some of the books you may recommend? The first book I would recommend that would be Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. That would be the first one. Uh, the second book, probably The Reasonable Faith by William Lane Craig. That goes into a much more in-depth view of apologetics and deals with specific arguments for it. And possibly, uh, possibly a, the case for Christ by Lee Strobel would be if I have to if I had to pick three books for introducing someone to Christianity, those would probably be the three: Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, Reasonable Faith by William Lane Craig, and The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Those are three of uh, my personal favorite books. 
They are absolutely. They are. Uh, they are very good. All, all three of those are good introductory levels. And uh, I'm with you, man. I love watching watching some of William Lane Craig's debates. What's a couple of the of his favorite debates that you've seen? His last debates in Sydney with um, Lawrence Krauss were good. Uh, when he dealt with the universe, uh, you know, the irrelevance of God and science. Uh, those ones were good. I, I enjoyed watching those three-part debates. Uh, his debates with Christopher Hitchens, uh, th- those debates were amazing. Uh, the debates that I favor with the, that I favor would probably be a debate with Alex Rosenberg. That would probably be my favorite. That was the debate where he introduced, I think it was two new arguments from the a- applicability of mathematics and the intentional states of consciousness. Uh, that would probably be oh, my yeah. favorite, Alex Rosenberg. Yeah, that's that's right. Most of those are on YouTube or on on his page, so you guys you guys can actually find them. So, well, Brian, do you, do you have any closing words for us as we kind of wrap the interview up? Oh uh, yes, uh, just, I was just for, just for so so people know. I went ahead and I posted the the link um, to the Illogical Atheist Facebook. I've, I've got that on the uh, in our, on our Theology Matters. Facebook page so people can see that and and I uh, would recommend you guys be sure to like it, share their stuff. It's a great way for evangelism. All right. Uh, in closing, I just I really want to I can't stress enough how important apologetics is in our culture today. Uh if I had to describe William Lane Craig had a lecture at um at Johnson Ferry Baptist Church uh earlier in 2010, and he referred to the state of the church as uh, as idling and intellectual neutral. They never really made an effort to advance apologetics with their youth. And what I want to what I want to leave with is just I can't stress enough how important apologetics is in our in our culture today. It is of extreme importance that we train our youth to be able to rigorously defend their faith and ask challenging questions back. If we don't do this, then I fear that the amount of youth that we have leaving the church today will, will increase even more in the future. So in closing, I just I really want to make sure people understand just how important that apologetics is. It is a biblical mandate, and it is absolutely of paramount importance that we make sure our youth are equipped to defend the faith, the one true faith. Yeah, that is right. That is absolutely right. And what I'll do, because you bring up some good points there at the end with the biblical mandate, Norm Geisler has got a, uh, an article on his on his uh, website called An Apologetic for Apologetics, and I'll link that to our Facebook page as well, uh, because it is. It's, it's, it's a command uh, that God has given us as well. And uh, he lays out several several biblical reasons as well as several logical reasons. Just, you know, in, in, in closing real quick, I have to get to our other guests, but, you know, one thing I've noticed, Brian, I get a lot of pushbacks from Christians on apologetics. A lot of Christians themselves, uh, and if you try and give arguments for God's existence or reason or logic, I mean, they some, some even accuse you of being in sin by doing that. Absolutely. So I, don't, I don't know if you've encountered that. But, uh, yes, it's, it's very saddening to see that, that some Christians sort of hold to this, you know, anti-science view, or they, they sort of feel threatened by the advancement of science. And many of them don't realize that, you know, some of the greatest 
Christian, what some of the greatest thinkers in the world have been have been theists, such as Isaac Newton, C.S. Lewis, and such. And, uh, it, it, and it's really exciting to see that many Christians will will give that sort of feedback to apologetics. You know? That's right. Well, we're just going to keep doing what we do, and and uh, hopefully people will just get the message spread and, uh, you know, do it for the glory of God. So, Brian, I appreciate you being on, and uh, tell you what, I'd like to have you back on uh, in a future show. Maybe we can do a whole show with you. I know you're, you're interested in uh, cosmology and that, so maybe we could do something on uh, fine-tuning or something. Absolutely, man. Just, you know, Hit me up whenever you want. I'm always available, and I'd love to possibly be able to do something in the future. I really enjoyed tonight. Thank you. Hey, thanks for coming on, brother. And uh, check out the Facebook page, uh, The Illogical Atheist. If you go to uh, facebook.com slash theologymatterswiththepalooz, you will see it there. Be sure to go there, like that page, share their stuff. It's a great way to evangelize. And get the word out. It's free. not going to cost you anything, so be sure to do that. So we're going to go ahead and take a break right now, and when we come back, we'll have a, uh, Bruce Pelosi from uh, apologetics.com, and we're going to be looking at arguments for the existence of God, and our phone lines will be open, so stay with us. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. One minute apologist. If you had one minute apologist. to be able to unpack for the audience, we interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. I'm here with Dr. Norman Geisler. If you've been a Christian long enough, we've all experienced the Jehovah's Witness coming to our door. My question is, are Jehovah's Witnesses a cult? Well, a cult is defined as a group that claims to be Christian, but denies one or more essential Christian doctrines. And there are about 14 essential Christian doctrines. We have a book on it called uh, conviction uh, without compromise. It has a chapter in each of these fundamental doctrines, like the deity of Christ. They deny that. The doctrine of hell. They deny that. They deny uh, the uh, bodily resurrection. Well, there are three right off the bat that they uh, don't believe. So how can you be a Christian when you deny fundamental Christian doctrines? Psalm 11:3 says, "If the foundation be destroyed, what shall the righteous do?" So you're going to call it a a building, if it doesn't have any foundations left to it, if it's crumbling because the foundations aren't there. Jehovah's Witnesses are not a Christian group. They're a Christian cult because they claim to be Christian but deny Christian doctrines, which makes them essentially a Christian cult. Welcome back to Theology Matters, and uh, this month we are just kind of focusing on atheism. And uh, last week uh, we did a show with uh, Dr. Neil Shenby, and we did a thing um, looking at whether or not atheism could really explain uh, morality, reality, truth, love, these type of things. Very good show, Uh, two-hour show. Uh, tonight we're going to have Bruce Pelosi from uh, Apologetics.com, and we're going to be dealing with some arguments for the existence of God. And then, real quick, I wanted to let everyone know: next week uh, we will be having Shandon Guthrie on. And uh, Shandon has been on the show before. He is a uh, uh, professor of philosophy in Las Vegas, and 
I first heard Shandon uh, in a debate with the infidel guy. And I don't know how many people remember the infidel guy. I don't even know if he's still doing his show. Uh, but uh, he had Shandon Guthrie on. And I just don't think he had a clue <laughs> what he was getting in for, into. And uh, I remember after listening to that discussion, uh, and, and Chandon came back on and did another debate with uh, philosopher Doug Kruger. But I remember, I remember uh, Reggie Finley saying that Chandon Guthrie was the smartest Christian he'd ever talked to. And uh, you, after listening to that that show, I can see why he would say that. So uh, next week we're going to do a show on Christian, the Christian and philosophy. And we'll deal with several areas of ethics, philosophy of religion, mind-body problem, and some other other really, really good issues. So tonight, uh, let me go ahead and introduce our guest. Uh, you know, I, I first heard uh, Mr. Pelosi back on apologetics.com probably three years ago, three or four years ago. I was working the night shift. I'm out here in the East Coast. He's on the West Coast. And the uh, Apologetics.com radio show, which yeah, I love this show, recommend it to everybody. Lindsey Brooks has, has been on our show, and he's a good friend. Uh, but they did a show on Thomas Aquinas. And uh, many know I go to uh, Southern Evangelical Seminary, uh, which was founded by Dr. Norm Geisler, who's a big Thomas Aquinas guy. And I've just really loved learning about Thomas Aquinas and and really loved learning the classical method of apologetics. And so listening to uh, Mr. Pelosi on apologetics.com was was just a blast to to hear that. And uh, brilliant guy. So let me go ahead and introduce him. Uh, he is uh, he was an early staff member of apologetics.com. He's a regular radio show uh, host and panelist from 2000 to 2002. Uh, then he returned to apologetics.com in 2010. He's recently been on the uh, ABC radio show, has some uh, blog entries available on his website. His interests revolve around the problem of evil, the possibilities of theological language, medieval theology, arguments for the existence of God, classical metaphysics, uh, divine attributes, and post-modernity and religion. Bruce is currently a Ph.D. candidate in philosophy of religion and theology at Claremont Graduate University, and his area of academic specialization is in the thought of Thomas Aquinas. And Bruce also holds memberships with the uh, EPS, Society of Christian Philosophers, American Academy of Religion. Bruce's uh, published peer-reviewed journal article has a book contributions pending and has written a book, uh, Reviews for Academic Journals. He's presented papers at numerous conferences, including the annual meeting of uh, the Evangelical Philosophical Society. So, Mr. Mr. Pelosi, are you there? Yes, yes. Thank you, Devin. That's a, that's a wonderful introduction. I really, uh, really appreciate your kind words. And uh, it, it's, it's interesting, that same show um, on Thomas Aquinas, that was my the first show that I did when returning to apologetics.com and it seems to have gotten a lot of interest even, you know, a couple of years after that show first aired and was posted online. I I've had a couple of people sporadically uh, friend me on Facebook because of it. So yeah. 
I, I guess it went over well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was, yeah, I was one of those guys. I just uh, I loved loved that show. Cool. So, well, uh, anything else? No, no. You you were very thorough in your introduction. I I really appreciate that. So um, yeah, yeah. It, it's uh, we just did a show uh, recently, uh, myself and Sam Walbaum on causality, and we talked about the four causes and. It's called uh, Hume and uh, causality, or Hume versus Aristotle and Aquinas. So it's something to oh. to check out as well. Tell you what, so. we'll we'll put. Uh, I'll, I'm sure those links to the, probably the one that you did in 2010. I'm sure that show's still up. We'll put both of those links on our Theology Matters Facebook page because they are oh. they are definitely worth the people listening to for sure. Oh, thank you. So. Yeah, so let's uh, let's let's talk a little bit. Uh, you know, we wanted to do this. I've uh, been doing a whole series this month on uh, on atheism and some mm-hmm. of the issues uh, with that, and thought maybe tonight we could talk a little bit about some arguments for uh, for the existence of God. And mm-hmm. um, I guess maybe before we do that, we could start a little bit and uh, tell tell us why should Christians why should Christians care. First of all, about apologetics. Secondly, mm-hmm. um, I, I don't know if you, I'm seeing an increased number of Christians, uh, mainly within the Reform camp, which is sad for me because I'm a Reform guy, uh, really criticize the use of uh, classical apologetics. So maybe mm-hmm. we'll take the first one, the first one first. Why should Christians care about apologetics? And what is apologetics? Well, well, apologetics in a nutshell is the defense of your faith, defense of what you believe. So from that standpoint, there's a whole bunch of different types of apologetics. There's Christian apologetics. There are Mormon apologists out there defending Mormonism. There are athe- atheist apologists. Um, of course, in Christianity, this is where you see people who have the title apologist. And really that comes from the Greek word apologia, which simply means defense, and it's, it's sort of a legal defense. And uh, it appears in the Bible only a handful of times, one of which occurs when Paul is before the Sanhedrin, and he says, brothers and fathers, hear now my defense. And the word he uses there that's translated defense is apologia, or apologetic. So he, uh, Paul, of course, then launches into his whole story on how he got into the ministry and meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus and uh, what has happened in his ministry. Now, an interesting aspect of that is the conversion of Paul is itself a a great apologetic for for Christianity. So it's hard to tell if he's giving an apologetic in the sense that we would recognize it today or if he's simply giving his his personal testimony. But that's that's sort of an interesting interplay. You know, apologia also uh, shows up in uh, 1 Peter 3.15, you know, always being ready to give an account for the faith that lies within you. So we have this idea, this biblical idea that we need to be defending our faith, that we need to have answers ready for those who ask. So that, you know, that, that biblical aspect is one reason to care. Another reason to care is is this phenomenon of secularization that we're seeing in the West. You're seeing a larger and larger number of skeptics and and something demographically called the rise of the nuns. And the nuns are those who 
put none down under religious affiliation. It, the whole idea of atheism and theism, it's just none, nothing. So, so that's a whole phenomenon that's occurring, and we need to care about that because it's, it's really pushing back against the Christian West and the sort of foundations of the society that we've enjoyed for thousands of years. So having answers to that, especially on the, the grassroots level, on the, the feet on the ground level, is what's going to really matter the most. So the folks in churches, if you, if you know these arguments and you know what's going on, you can engage on the ground face-to-face with people who are never going to read like William Lane Craig or Lee Strobel. You know, just simply having some knowledge of it, and you don't even have to have this sort of in-depth knowledge that the scholars have, but just having some sort of idea, it gives you a a leg up and helps um, spread the gospel, I think. I'd be interested to know, uh, uh, is it Mr. Pelosi or Bruce, or how how can I refer to you? Uh, You can just call me Bruce, which is also a a, a nice cheesy movie from – the 80s, I think. But <laughs> <laughs> hey, that works. We're, we're comedy as well, so yes, absolutely. What, you know, your your opinion in in the landscape in America, 20 years from now, what do you think it's going to look like as far as the the Christian world? Do you think there's going to be? I mean, it seems in a sense, you know, because I, I don't know. I think back, you know, maybe in the 70s or or mid-80s as far as works on apologetics, so really I don't think was a whole lot, uh, as to mm-hmm. where now there seems to be a real explosion. What do you mm-hmm. think America will look like as far as uh, Christian and ap- Christianity and apologetics uh, in 20 years from now? Do you think it's going to decline, or do you think it's going to rise? Well, th- that's a hard question to answer. Um, in terms of a global trend, we're seeing Christianity moving south and east. So the global south and the global east is where Christianity is thriving and growing the most. So if we have some sort of, of revival in the west that brings about a, a renewal and a definitive pushback against this modernist worldview that, that precludes um, a, good, a good word that I've picked up is enchantment, the enchantment of the world, where, where God is present in the world in a way that that is sort of in your face. You know, it, unless we can bring that attitude back in the West, I, I think we are heading to a Western world where uh, Christians are sort of an uh, unvocal at best and a minority at, at worst. So I, I think that's sort of where things are heading unless, you know, God intervenes. And of course, we all know that that happens. There have been great revivals. Right. Kind of on the on the same note, um, talk talk to us a little bit about maybe the uh, the secular landscape. It seems mm-hmm. as though atheism and agnosticism that is kind of on the rise uh, in America. Is that would you agree with that or? Yeah, the demographics are saying that it's on on the rise, and that's tied to what I was talking about with with the so-called rise of the nuns. Now, of course, one way to look at that is in the past, the nuns were sitting in our churches. They just culturally, they were Christian, but, you know, culturally it made no sense for them to come out and be vocal about the fact that they were 
none of the above. So that's one possibility of things. But there, there is this um, rise in agnosticism and atheism, and, and um, particularly you see this with the, the new atheists. And, and they're so-called new because really a lot of their arguments are at best just updated with uh, contemporary science rather than being truly new. So uh, some of the things that uh, Richard Dawkins has said, for instance, or Sam Harris or Christopher Hitchens, uh, similar things have been said before. Uh, some of the studies that I've done, there are things that they've said about Christianity that has been said also by like uh, Bertrand Russell in the early part of the century, H.L. Mencken. And then if you go back really far, you know, uh, Thomas Aquinas was dealing with similar attitudes at the University of Paris in the 13th century. So there's this, there's a sense, you know, Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. And the, the new atheists aren't really new. They're just using modern science to articulate the same message that they've had for a long time. Does that yeah, make sense? Maybe a little louder <laughs> than the answer. Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, th- we've got a lot more media now. We've got this flood of media. Right. We've got Facebook. We've got Twitter. We've got YouTube. So there's a lot more outlets for what they have to say. You know, a um, hundred years ago, you would have to wait for somebody to write a book and have that book be published and have that book travel quite some time it would take years for an idea to to be known and to circulate uh newspapers help things in local areas that's how Mencken got a lot of his word out you know but uh today things are moving much faster so that megaphone is louder but the megaphone works both ways you know christians we have that same the same tools available to us that you know the new atheists have to them we just we need to use them wisely. Yeah, I like that. That's uh, that's good. Um, just for those who uh, who are listening, may not know uh, who the new atheists are. Who who are some of the new atheists, and what are some of the popular works uh, that the average okay. person who's going to work? Who, what, what's what's the stuff they're going to run into? Who are some of the authors and the books? Well, you've got um, Richard Dawkins, who's written the God Delusion. So you, you can tell what he thinks right there off the title. You've got Chris, Christopher Hitchens, who's written a book, you know, God is Not Good. And then uh, Sam Harris, I'm, and I'm sorry, I forget his titles off the top of my head, but uh, he's also written some, some books that are attacking Christianity. So uh, they, they, get, they have some traction in pop, popular culture, although they're not so popular that you know, anybody in the street would know. So I, I lecture at a, uh, I, I teach at a community college here in Southern California, and, you know, these young 19, 18, 19, 20-year-old uh, kids who are, you know, mostly secular, they haven't heard of these guys. Huh. So I, I think that's a positive thing. I mean, the messages of Harrison Hitchens and Dawkins, it's, it's only vaguely there for them even. Most of these kids, they, they don't know. They're still learning. They're still open. So there's a lot of hope there. You know, the New Atheist message is not as intractable or entrenched as uh, they might want us to think. 
That's good, and that that is definitely a good thing. And I, you know, I like your point about uh, you know with the internet too, and it goes both ways because several, you know, several good Christian apologetics uh, ministries are are up. And you know, I'm just thinking, you know, with the Craig and the Krauss debate, uh, mm-hmm. the three debates happened. That that can mm-hmm. only be a positive thing for Christianity. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because they'll, yeah. they'll really see the, the bankruptcy of the view. Yeah. Well, well, one of one of the things, though, one of the drawbacks of that sort of debate is that it it can get into technical areas that, you know, your average uh, layperson is not going to follow. So and that's why we need to also bring it down a couple of notches. And uh, a good example of of some work, and you know, to plug my own uh, team as well. Uh, Andy Steger with Apologetics.com Canada. He's got these uh, Think videos, and I think there might be one on the Apologetics.com website right now. He really takes these concepts, boils them down, and delivers them in an easy-to-understand manner. And you know, he's he's pretty technically accurate too. I mean, that's one of the cri- criticisms that the secular world has of Christians and Christian apologists is that sometimes we will go some easy route and we'll reduce things and make them too simple well you know Andy's not doing that he's really getting a lot of it he's getting it right man so you know we we need more stuff like that and you know we need more outlets for for that kind of work and that's on the apologetics.com website you say yeah yeah there's uh, he's got a couple on there and then there's he also has apologetics.com uh, Canada. He's got the the Canada ministry. Let me see if I can find the exact citation offhand. But uh, if you go on the apologetics.com website, go under projects and do click on Canada, you'll get to see a lot more of Andy's work and his thinking series. And it's it's just really good stuff. So he, yeah, he real, as I said, yeah. Yeah, listen, listen to you guys for years, and uh, you know the stuff that Apologetics.com does. Always amazing. I know you guys have your own conferences, and you um, you got plenty of, of podcasts, and, and uh, mm-hmm. several of you have probably written some books. Is that correct as well? Or, I, uh, yeah, we've got a uh, book out corporately, and I know that uh, I, I think that some of us have got some uh, other activities going on. I know uh, Sam Wellbaum has published some journal articles. I have. I've got some book contributions, as you noticed, you noted. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, but, yeah, you know, we, we, we are just trying to serve the Lord and bring glory to his kingdom through just uh, defending the faith and, uh, you know, making... Um, making it easier to let God in, so to speak. That's one way to put it. Of course, that's not a very yeah. reformed way to put it. But, um, <laughs> yeah, we know what you mean. Yeah. Um, let's, let's do this. Maybe you can talk for, for a second, because what we're going to be doing tonight, I guess, is more of uh, what would be called classical apologetics. Mm-hmm. What is classical apologetics? Well, classical apologetics is... Um, using the principles of reason to get to some sort of common ground and give 
a defense for some sort of theological point. Uh, in many cases, it's building up from common aspects of the world that anybody can understand into some sort of, of premise. Though classical apologetics would admit, or classical apologists would admit that um, you can't get to every Christian doctrine simply from you know the sheer ground. Uh, ideas such as the Trinity, that God is a Trinity, um, ideas such as the uh, the God-man nature of Christ, that he's simultaneously God and man. The the $5 word for that is the hypostatic union, which, you know, now that I've said it, forget it. Okay. That, uh, the God-man aspect of Jesus. Um, you know, th- those are perpetual mysteries. You can't make an argument from that from from just sheer philosophy, but you can defend them as not being against reason. So it's this idea, there are certain things like the immortality of the soul, the existence of God, um, ideas such as that, that you can argue from, from common experience, from premises that anybody at all can understand and, and get to where you're going. And then when it comes to the, the revealed word, the, the revelation of God as a trinity, the revelation of Jesus as simultaneously God and man, you know, those you cannot get to any way other than just the sheer revelatory aspect, but you can show that they're not contrary to reason. So sure. that, that's the general principle of classical apologetics. So in classical I'll... apologetics, we'll, we'll use, you know, Philosophical arguments will use um, evidence, so it's got some aspects of evidentialism in it, but it's not solely based on evidentialism. Really is a great method. Uh, absolutely love that method. <clears throat> Let's do this. Uh, Bruce, what I was going to do is play a uh, about a minute and a little less than a minute and a half clip uh, of Richard Dawkins. and. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of get us into, move us into our our direction. And he's he's giving a lecture. I believe I was actually at this this talk. It was at um, UNC, uh, UNCC Queens here in Charlotte. And I felt bad for this young lady. She was, uh, well, let's see, it was myself, my wife, and about four people from the seminary, and this girl in a uh, stadium of about 800 uh, atheists. And she, wow. during the question and answer time, was brave enough to go up to the mic, and uh, she asked this question. I'm going to go ahead and play this this clip, and then we'll come back and uh, and talk about it. Okay. This is probably going to be the most simplest one for you to answer, but what if you're wrong? Well, what if I'm wrong? I mean. Anybody could be wrong. We could all be wrong about the flying spaghetti monster and the pink unicorn and the flying teapot. Um, You happen to have been brought up, I would presume, in the Christian faith. You know what it's like not to believe in a particular faith because you're not a Muslim. You're not a Hindu. Why aren't you a Hindu? Because you happen to have been brought up in America, not in India. If you'd been brought up in in India, you'd be a Hindu. If you were brought up in, in... um, Denmark in the time of the Vikings, you'd be believing in Wotan and Thor. If you were brought up in, in classical Greece, you'd be believing in, in Zeus. If you were brought up in Central Africa, you'd 
be believing in the great juju up the mountain. In, there's no particular reason to pick on the Judeo-Christian God in which by the sheerest accident you happen to have been brought up and, and ask me the question, what if I'm wrong? What if you're wrong about the great juju at the bottom of the sea? <laughs> So there you have Richard Dawkins, and he's saying, you know, what if you're wrong? What do you, what do you say to something like that, Bruce? Well, I'd like him to actually answer the question instead of just pointing fingers everywhere, you know? So I think what she was trying to do is, is get him into what's called Pascal's wager, and that's sort of a pragmatic um, – it's not really an argument, but a, a pragmatic way of looking at it where if you're right about Christianity, you know, if you believe that, that Jesus is Lord, and you die and Jesus is Lord, you go to heaven, you have ultimate reward. I mean, that's it, you know? If an atheist is right about atheism, you get nothing. You die, you're dead, you're dust, there's nothing. If... Uh, if you're wrong about atheism, you're resurrected to internal hell. You're, you're resurrected into a state that is um, not going to be of your liking, to say it the least. You know, it, you're going to have eternal loss. So if you're wrong about Christianity and atheism turns out to be true, what happens? Nothing. No gain, no loss. If you're wrong about atheism, you have all loss. If you're right about atheism, you have no gain. So, so there, it's this way of, of arguing it and just pointing out the pragmatics of the thing. I think that's probably what she was trying to get him to go, so, um, which sort of brings out one of the you know, aspects of a pragmatic argument. If, if somebody is not thinking pragmatically, it's not going to appeal to them. But, but I think that's what she was trying to do, and I think uh, Dawkins completely hedged it and didn't even bother trying to answer, and he even just sort of got his facts all wrong. Yeah, it really was. Uh, it really was being there. It was just like watching, you know, they say atheists are religious. It was really just like watching a preacher preaching to the choir is what mm-hmm. it was really like. Laugh yeah. at cue, they would applaud at cue. I mean, there was just... It was really uh, it was it was a sight to behold. It was actually rather sad to, to be involved. These you know you're you're just surrounded uh, by mm-hmm. people that you know radically hate hate God. And this this young lady, I'll tell you, she had more courage uh, than anybody in that whole place to be able to go up oh. and and, uh, and and do that. You know. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I've I've read Dawkins' work. I can be prepared to address some of this stuff, but, you know, to be honest with you, I'm not sure I'd approach him like that. So, yeah, well, that's a yeah. lot of bravery. Yeah. It is. I'll tell you what, though, I would like to see, I would love to see uh, Bruce Pelosi up there on that <laughs> microphone and challenge him. I'm curious, um, uh, Bruce, so what, what would we say when he says uh, to her, how do you know you're not wrong. What what do we as Christians say? What are do we have good reasons for thinking that God exists, or is this mm-hmm. just all a big 
pipe dream and just wishful thinking? Do we have good reasons to think that God oh. exists? Oh yeah, we've we've got good reasons. I mean, I think uh, you know one of the the biggest reasons is is simply that you know for most Christians, God is simply as present as another human being in our lives. Wow. So in terms of, of just immediate certainty, you know, I, I can't doubt the existence of God more than, any more than I could doubt the existence of my wife. You know, but something that appeals to me like that and that that completely subjective evidence is not going to have any traction with somebody like Richard Dawkins which is which means it's a good reason why we have non-subjective reasons to believe in God so we've got arguments for the existence of God and these arguments are they're very good well so, let's, let's let's look at a couple of maybe before we do that can you explain maybe what is general revelation? Maybe we talk about that just for a second. Uh, what, oh, what, yeah. is, what is general revelation? Okay. General revelation, yeah, is the idea that uh, God has revealed himself to all human beings through God's creation of the world, of the universe. So this reveals reveals God to all. And the principle behind this is that you know, there, there's this uh, principle in classic metaphysics that, you know, when you create, whatever is created bears some likeness or some attributes of whatever, whoever is the creator. So a classic example would be the sculptor and the sculpture. So whatever the sculpture is doing, it's going to bear some resemblance or some knowledge of the sculptor from looking at the sculpture. So um, I, I do art. So I, I do some abstract painting. And if you look at my abstract paintings, you can tell something about who I am. You can tell something about what drives me. Like, for instance, I, I actually have a painting where I tried to paint Immanuel Kant's epistemology. So weird thing to try to paint, I know. But that tells you something about my interests and what's Going in on in my head, just knowing the title of the painting and seeing the painting, you can tell something about who I am. So in the same way, looking at the world, you can tell something about the God who created the world. Now you can't tell everything about the God who created the world any more than you can tell anything about, you know, tell uh, everything about me from my painting. So when we look at the world, the world attests to the glory of God. Um, Romans chapter 1, where, where Paul is writing about um, that the heavens declare the glory of God and, uh, you know, makes God's, God known in his invisible qualities. That's a, that's a primary text, as well as some of the songs that, that cry about the glory of the Lord seen in his creation. So that, that's sort of the biblical basis of it. And there's the, and the um, logical, rational basis of seeing something about the Creator in the works of the Creator. So for, for God, we'd be able to tell that God exists from looking at creation. We might be able to tell maybe a couple of God's attributes, but not everything about God. You still need revelation. You still need that self-revealing power of God in order to know um, 
fully who God is and the plan of salvation. Well, let's move into some of the arguments for the existence of God. And I'll let you just kind of, we've got, you know, 50 minutes, so we've got plenty of time, so you don't have to rush. Uh, lead us through a couple of these and, and, and what are maybe some of the objections to these, as well as some mm-hmm. of the, the response to the objections. Okay. I'll, I'll kind of turn it over to you. Okay, well, um, I'm going to start off with which, what's called the ontological argument. And, you know, just to preface, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of this argument myself, but there's something to it. And because there's something to it, it gets a lot of attention. Uh, there's a story about Bertrand Russell that he was, and Bertrand Russell, for those who don't know, is, is a famous atheist. He, he was the Richard Dawkins of his day. He, um, he had a huge influence on uh, society in the early part of the century. And uh, Bertrand Russell recounts walking along the path in Oxford, and for just a few minutes it strikes him that the ontological argument is true and correct. It's a sound argument. So now, of course, that, that only lasted a few minutes for him, but any argument that can get the attention of one of the greatest atheists in the history of human philosophy, there's got to be something to it. You know what I'm saying? So the ontological argument in a nutshell, and this is, um, you know, uh, Anselm's version, starts out with with saying that uh, God is the greatest conceivable being or something than which nothing greater can be thought. So if the greatest conceivable being did not actually exist, then something greater could exist, that is, a greatest conceivable being that exists not only in your mind, but also actual, actually. Therefore, the greatest conceivable being actually exists. So how does that, how does it sound? What do you think of that, Devin? It, it seems brilliant. I mean, it's, it's like... Mm-hmm. I think that there would be something wrong with it, but I mean, it just, uh, it's like, you can tell it's thought through at the same time, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There, there's, as I said, there's something to it. So if we define God as the greatest conceivable being, then, you know, being able to conceive of some great being shows that, that there is, there's some great being that we can conceive. Now, if that great being doesn't exist in reality, then it's not really so great. The greatest conceivable being exists in reality as well as in our minds. So now, there's a classic objection, and in Ganilo's time, or not Ganilo, Anselm's time, this was made by somebody by the name of Ganilo. Ganilo uh, challenged Anselm and said, what about an island? What if I said there's a greatest conceivable island, and uh, because this island is the greatest that I can conceive, it also exists in reality as well as in my mind. It can't only exist in my mind. So can, can we prove it that way? So, and, and one of the things that's interesting about that objection, and um, you know, I don't know if you're a fan. Are you a fan of the TV show Lost at all, Devin? I've, I've heard about it, but I've never seen it. Okay. 
Well, for a while, I, I was hoping that uh, the island they're on and lost would be Ganilo's Island, but it didn't turn out to be the case. So anyway, that's uh, one of the few pop culture references that I can actually make. But uh, this is sort of a uh, uh, reductio ad absurdum critique of Anselm's argument. And what that means, that's a fancy word that just means you take it to some sort of absurd consequence in order to show that it's false. So it's a, it's a way of sort of parodying the argument in order to show a falsity. Another way to put it is uh, you could apply that to pizza. Perfect pizza must exist because existence counts as a quality of a perfect pizza. Therefore, the pe- perfect pizza exists in reality and not just in my mind. I so think, that's I that's think another way. Up, uh, in, the, in the Craig debate, didn't he, didn't he bring something to that effect up? Um, I, I'm not sure. I, I, yeah, it, I it's a very com- yeah. it, It's a very common way to approach the ontological argument. But there's a thing. Here's a here's the thing about it. Um, it that sort of objection doesn't get to the core of the argument because there's something entirely different about God than an island or a pizza. So God is, is categorically different than those sorts of things. So in medieval philosophy, you know, God is the only being that necessarily contains his own existence. So his existence is necessary. As a necessary being, you, you don't have – it puts him on a completely different playing field than any other objects in the world. No, no other physical object can have po- this particular possibility. So that's, that's one way to deal with that particular objection. So we're, we're not talking about some, something the same level as the um, as an object in the world. God is, is something entirely different. Does that make sense? That does. That that does make sense. Um, all right. Let me ask. Let me just ask you this. Um, I was going through uh, Doug Rotheis's book, Christian Apologetics. Have you read that? Uh, no, no, I haven't. Okay. Well, he's got a section on the um, on the ontological argument, and I guess he makes uh, a distinction. And I'm not real familiar with the ontological argument, but I guess. Uh, what is the difference between, I guess, the, the ontological argument and, and, I guess, Alvin Planting's version of, of the ontological argument? Okay. Well, the ontological argument as given by uh, Anselm, it's an a priori proof using, some, using language that is um, more prone to and at home within uh, theological work. Now, I think uh, that differs from Alvin Planica's version, his, um, his modal version of the argument, in that he gets into some very fine um, modal logic. So he's got hey, what's what called the victorious with? modal version. What's that? No, I'm just, just curious. I don't know if you can brief or, uh, or break it down, but modal logic, what exactly is, is modal logic? Um, modal logic is a way of, of looking at, at the log, at logical outcomes in terms of 
uh, possibility and necessity and uh, uh, contingency. And th those terms have bearing in modal logic. And you know, just to be honest with you, I'm I'm not a logician, so okay. we're starting to get to the edge of of what I can talk about with, regarding logic, but. These terms have a very specific meaning within modal logic in in describing the possible possible outcomes of a, a logical syllogism. Now, if something's necessary, then it's it's completely true. If something is probable, then it may or may not be true. If it's um, and, and so on and so forth. So sure. that's one way of of describing it. So do you do you think the ontological argument is successful then or or what do you what do you think? I think it's useful and I think it's a good good argument for an apologist to have in your back pocket so to speak. But okay. uh, I don't think it necessarily gets where you're going cuz one one of the um one of the critiques of the classical ontological argument is that the that it's it's circular. You're starting out with a definition of God that you're trying to prove, and and you're going into it from that route, and therefore you're not succeeding in in your proof. And I think there's something to that, though. Planiga has that in mind, and he's directly trying to address that particular issue, and. Um, I'm still not sure that he completely succeeds in the nature of necessity. So he talks about um, a property as maximal greatness entails that the property has maximal excellence in every possible world. So that means that, uh, that that's his starting point. So any property is maximum absolutely necessarily everywhere. So every possible world that's the case. And then he starts from there and he moves on. So, uh, you know, one, one of the aspects of that is how we can get to knowledge of these maximal properties to begin with. So even then, maximal properties and the possibility of maximal properties is, is your star starting point. So, but again, as I said, I'm, I'm not a logician, so we're getting into right. the bounds of what I can authoritatively speak to, but, you know, it, it's, it's an argument, as I said, that seems to be very useful. There are some folks who find it very, very convincing indeed. Uh, some of the apologetics.com staff members are thoroughly convinced by this argument, and um, it, because of the attention it's received, I, I got to say, it's a good argument to know whether you think it's a good argument or not. You, know, you never know how people are going to respond. Maybe s some people who are really bound up in uh, a priori reasoning, which is reasoning from, total, from, from first principles to an end, having a starting point that is, is prior to our experience. If you meet somebody who's an atheist who happens to really value that type of reasoning and happens to value that the type of thought this argument really engenders, which is more of a platonic type of way of viewing the world, this argument is going to be convincing for that person. So, and believe it or not, there are atheist platonists out there. You know, there, there are atheists out there who are platonic in the sense that they believe the human ideas precede what we know about the world. 
So if you're starting out with human ideas and you're you're making an argument to a conclusion, you know you never know they might find that more convincing than arguments from uh, natural physics and um, natural science. So it's a good right. argument to have in your back pocket. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I like that. Let me ask you, what exactly does, and we don't, we won't spend too much time with it, but um, what exactly does the argument do if it succeeds? Well, if it succeeds, it tells you that there is a greatest possible being, a being who has all of the sort of perfect qualities that you would expect in a greatest possible being. So it it gets you actually, you know, honestly a little further along the road to God's attributes than it would, than it does arguing from more uh, cosmological arguments. Because you can easily make, make the argument that a greatest possible being is going to have the greatest possible knowledge, the greatest possible um, power, and all these omni-attributes, so to speak, the all-powerfulness, all-knowing, all-loving you know, those are maximal attributes, and you would expect that out of a maximally power, um, maximally uh, good being or, or a greatest possible being. So, so that, that's one thing I think attracts a lot of thinkers to this particular argument is you can, you can leap fairly quickly into the attributes of God and, and make that argument, whereas with, with other arguments from classical theism, you've got some extra steps to do, you know, proving that there is a, you know, um, a necessary being, proving that merely that God exists doesn't prove that God exists and has, uh, and is all-knowing and is all-powerful and is all-loving. Yeah. You have to do extra steps to get there. So, so that, as I said, that's one attraction to it. All right, let me, uh, phone lines are open, 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. If you have a comment or question, we would love to hear from you guys. Uh, don't have to, uh, you don't have to be a Christian, of course, to call in. You can disagree, and uh, I'm sure uh, Bruce would love to have a good conversation with you. So, again, 760 3907, feel free to call in. And Bruce, go ahead, I'll, I'll turn it over to you again. What is, uh, what's the next argument you wanted to look at? Well, um, see, so you, you had this nice little outline, but I think I'm going to skip around a little bit, if that's okay. Yeah, and, do whatever you um, like to do. Okay. Well, let's talk just uh, briefly about the third way of Thomas Aquinas. Uh-huh. So this is a cosmological argument, and this argument starts, it's an argument from common experience in the world. So the common experience in the world that we have in this argument is this feeling of things that are coming to existence and passing away. So we, we notice this about the world around us. Now the argument is that, and he uses in the Summa Theologia, he says the third way is taken from possibility and necessity. Now, the, an interesting a thing to keep in mind is that Thomas was writing prior to the advent of modal logic. So possibility and necessity in um, 
or contingency and necessity in Thomas means something different from contingency and necessity in modal logic. So in modal logic, nece necessary means that it is the case in all possible worlds. It's a, it's a mode of a statement. Now what Thomas is talking about are things, not modes of logic. So when he talks about contingent things or possibility, he's talking about objects in the world that come into being and pass away. Necessary object, and this is one aspect of the argument that trips people up, is that for Thomas, there are two categories of necessary beings. Necessary beings who come into existence and don't pass away, and then necessary beings who never, neither come into existence nor pass away. So that would be God with the second one. God does not come into being nor pass away. So God is necessary. But the human soul and angels, the, we are, those are necessary beings as well in the sense that there is no passing away of the human soul or of angelic beings. So that's something that can uh, trip people up when they're reading this because it's really it's two arguments together. And the first argument okay. us usually tends to be um, a little bit easier to grasp, to understand. Sure. And then the second one comes in and it, it sort of throws people for a loop. So he says, we find in nature things that are possible to be and not to be since they are found to be generated and to be corrupt and consequently possible to be and not be. So that's like, you know, the tree blew over in the storm. That's, uh, you know, my car broke down. You know, those are all things that come into being and pass away. So my pencil broke. But it's impossible these, for these to always exist, for that which is possible not to be and to be at the same time is not. Therefore, if everything is possible not to be, then at one time there could have been nothing in existence. So now this, this is also another bit that trips people up because what he's talking about is it seems like he might be talking about um, some sort of linear causation like if we look backward in time, everything has to line up. But he's actually talking about now, and he's talking about what supports our being now in this moment. What gives us the ability to keep being and keep existing from moment to moment? And if everything didn't have something sustaining in every, every moment – you know, every, the whole universe would come crashing down and pop out of existence. So that, right. that's the argument that he's giving. So it's not an argument about linear time base. He's not saying that you can't have an infinite past. He's saying you can't have an infinite now. That right now, you have to be sustained by the world around you to give you the power to keep existing right now. Um, but, um, can, can I ask you a question real quick, Bruce? Mm-hmm. Uh, would that, uh, I mean, essentially, if, if the argument works, would that do away with deism then? Uh, kind of the, the idea that God just kind of rolls the dice and steps back, or, or would that not come into play at all with deism? Well, de it depends on what you understand by deism. If you, What you understand okay. by deism is a God who winds up a world that keeps running and God has nothing to do with it and does not sustain the world, then yeah, it really throws a wrench into deism. 
Um, if you have a conception of deism where God sustains the world yet has nothing to do with it, which really seems illogical, then uh, you could still have something going on there. But okay. ultimately, you know, the, this particular way establishes not only the existence of God, but also that God is continually sustaining the entire world. Yeah, I remember because I, I was at the, uh, the cross-exam and instructor's academy, the, uh, the training in, in mm-hmm. September. That was one of the questions that came up, you know, because we, uh, with, the, with the I don't have enough faith to be an atheist curriculum, they do a lot of focusing on the on the Kalam cosmological and uh, the beginning of the universe and that. One of the questions that came up was, um, uh, you know, somebody had asked, well, it doesn't make sense that the universe would just cease to exist if God... Um, you know, just had started it, but then walked off. Uh, but our, our one of our professors of philosophy, Richard Howe, I'm not sure if you know him or not, but uh, he did his I think he did his dissertation on the on the third way, and he gave the example of something. Um, I think if, I, if I'm correct, I don't want to misstate it, but almost like the person that is playing music, as long as they are blowing on the trumpet, for example, and the music is coming. But as soon as they stop uh, blowing on the trumpet, then it, it ceases to be. And kind of kind of gave that as an analogy of, of God upholding the universe. I thought that was pretty pretty awesome yeah. when I heard that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love that example. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna steal it from here on out. So you know I'll have to footnote him somehow. So but <laughs> but for for Thomas's argument, imagine not just one trumpet, but a whole line of trumpets, each trumpet blowing into the other trumpet. All the trumpets are blowing as long as and causing music in each trumpet. Now, what if, if you, would it work if you wound them up in a circular way and had, say, an infinite circle of trumpets all interconnected? Would that work? And Thomas is saying, no, that's absurd. That's ridiculous. You know, these t- trumpets don't have the power within themselves to blow themselves. They have to rely on another trumpet in order to be blown. So you have to have a first blower of the trumpet, somebody at the end of the trumpet sustaining all of the music all the way along. Right. And that, that's a good way to understand the sort of causality that he has here, and that's the same principle for all the other arguments in the five ways is that particular idea of causality. Even in, in the first wave from motion, it's motion that's sustained in a similar way to this, this trumpet example. So. I remember um, we had went to, uh, it was during our cults and religious studies class, we went to um, a, they would get together at this, this fish place and they would do um, uh, beer and pie, pints and all this and philosophy. And one of the guys that they had there was a Anglican, and everybody had come to hear this gentleman talk. Very, very smart guy, uh, but also very against like natural theology and classical apologetics. Mm-hmm. One of the uh, one of the arguments he raised was, and I've heard it before. Maybe you can address this: is that the third way uh, commits? Um, I want to say something like the fallacy of composition. Have you heard, mm-hmm. heard that before? Yeah, exactly yeah, I've heard that. Mean? Yeah, what is it that they they mean by that? But how do you how do you answer that? Well, the fallacy of composition has to do with um, saying that 
there's something about the whole that is different from the parts. So, um, hang on a second. I've got something here that I can use with that. So, I remember, remember some of the some of the people had kind of um, addressed it when he said that, but since then I have I had heard that objection raised a few times, you know. With mm-hmm. that, so. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, the the fallacy of composition. He's. I'm sorry, I just don't know that. No, go, go, go ahead. All that well. Good and take a minute. Go go okay. ahead and uh, go ahead and take a, go ahead and take a minute and um, give the phone number out again for those who are wanting to call in. I'd uh, love to love to be able to hear from you. Seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven. And we're going to be we're going to keep going and and um, dealing with this. And actually, right now would probably be a good time to take a uh, maybe take a short break. And then when we come back, we will continue our conversation uh, with arguments for the existence of God. If you know people who have questions or maybe uh, would be interested in dialogue, let them know that we're on, and we'd love to talk with them. So I'll go ahead and take a minute break and be back right after this. This is John MacArthur inviting you to join me for Portraits of Grace. Men, have you ever been at work and realized you forgot to shave? Well, that's a good illustration of what it means to hear God's word and forget to respond. James said, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looked at his natural face in a mirror. This is not some casual glance either, but a careful, observant stare. Yet even a long, hard look is worthless if you walk away and forget what you saw. If you fail to respond because the image reflected in the mirror will soon fade when you don't make the corrections. Perhaps you've been putting off something that you know God's Word is instructing you to do. If so, don't delay. This is John MacArthur trusting that you'll look into the Word of God and become a true portrait of grace. society faces today, religion remains one of the most divisive and destructive. I hope you find this film on it interesting. There are lots of people who have been brought up in some religion or other, are unhappy in it, don't believe it, or are worried about the evils that are done in its name. There are people who feel vague yearnings to leave their parents' religion and wish they could, but just don't realize that leaving is an option. I've written a book called The God Delusion, aimed at those people. The book inspired a short documentary series for Channel 4 on the dangers of religion called Root of All Evil. Now we've made a single film called The God Delusion from that series. The film explores a world increasingly polarized by religion, with the atrocities of 9-11 and 7-7 still raw memories. 
In America's Midwest and in Israel, it became apparent how prone otherwise sane people are to extremism once they indulge in faith, belief without evidence, when they give up reason. And that is Richard Dawkins uh, dealing with his new book. Uh, at the time, he had written The God Delusion and a documentary that was coming out. Uh, but uh, you just <laughs> you, you see uh, just the, the continued straw men that they make. But we're back here with uh, Bruce Pelosi, and we're looking at uh, arguments for the existence of God. And uh, Bruce is walking us through uh, the third way from Thomas Aquinas. And yes, we're talking yes. about uh, one of the one of the objections that is raised uh, against the third way is the fallacy, the fallacy of composition. And uh, yes. Bruce, I'll, I'll turn that over to you. Okay. Yeah. Um, now, the fallacy of composition is the idea that it's fallacious to infer something about the whole from just one of the parts, from or just a portion. So even if you look at every part to infer something about the whole from every part, you know, it's, it's fallacious. So that, that's the fallacy of composition in a nutshell. And, you know, there are some, it, it's called a fallacy for a reason. There, there are some ways in which it's used where um, it, it's, it's clearly some fallacious thinking. However, if you really want to take it seriously and apply it stringently to everything, I, I sort of doubt how you would be able to even do so, like natural science because often you see scientists, biologists are inferring something about a whole organism by examining the parts of the organism. That's, that's just scientific method. You're looking at the parts and you're saying something about the whole. So right. if the if the composition of or the fallacy of composition is so strident that there is no way to get around it, then you have to say that some aspects of natural science are are fallacious as well. But clearly, we're not willing to do that. We're not willing to tell the biologist, no, you can't say something about you know that fly because you're looking at parts and you can't say something about the whole plot fly. You know, no, you can't do that. So we're using the same sort of principles when it comes to the entire world as a whole. We're looking at the parts. Now, of course, the world is not a fly. The world is, you know, and when I say world, I mean the entire universe. And the interesting thing about the entire universe is that every piece of the universe is contingent. And even... When we, if you bunt to contemporary physics, you know, you, that really comes out with the universe having a beginning. So, but of course, in Thomas's day, he, was, he didn't know that. He was assuming that the universe was uh, completely, um, he, he was assuming the universe was infinite because that's the take that his uh, interlocutors had. That's that's the beauty of this argument as well is it doesn't re, you know rely uh, you know with with the Kalam sometimes you know you hear you hear Dr. Craig do do some of these debates and 
And you know, he's a guy that knows the science, and he knows uh, he knows the physics and all that and everything behind it. But the beauty about this this argument is, even if the world or the universe was eternal, that is just irrelevant to whether or not mm-hmm. um, God exists. That's yeah. that's the beauty yeah. of, this, of this argument. And we're talking about metaphysical principles here. So we're talking about the idea that uh, of being in every particular, any particular moment, and how does anything at all continue to exist in any moment at all? Right. So, so, so that that's the fun part of it. So you could even say, give an atheist an infinite number of multiple universes, and uh, a whole, as you pointed out that's really the contemporary version of an infinite universe is to posit these, these multiple universes. And so you can give somebody that and then give this sort of argument and say, well, all of these multiple universes, you know, come into being and pass away. Our universe comes into being and passes away. So at this moment, every universe that you want, all the, you know, what is sustaining them and keeping them into existence? What is, uh, what gives us the principle of existence right now? You know, wh- which trumpet is blowing our horn? So you have to end up with a, a first necessary being that gives being to everything else. What are uh, what are some of the other what are some of the other arguments? We've got about uh, twenty minutes. Is there what are some of the other arguments that you find? Uh, pretty convincing and successful. Well, let me let me ask you this real real quick before we move on. You know, I talk with a lot of people. Um, for example, let's say we go to this philosophy club on second and fourth Sundays, and it's, it's funny that uh, a lot of the atheists will bring up the obje- objection of evolution. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I don't hold to to you know Darwinian evolution. Uh, but they have, they have this idea that if, if biological evolution is, is true, and uh, we almost see Dawkins espouse this type of thinking, that if, if biological evolution is true, then therefore God does not exist. What role, uh, and I'm not talking about inherency or, or the Bible, but just strictly God's existence, what role, if any, does evolution have to do with the existence of, of God? Well, I, it's really a red herring because there are plenty of thinkers out there that have done work on, say, theistic evolution and, and other things, and saying that evolution explains away God just really doesn't do the trick. It just points at, it just tries to point your, your attention away from the real issue, is, which is precisely the existence of God, by saying, Pointing to evolution, yeah, that raises the question where where did evolution come from? Why is there evolution to begin with? So, you know, in the spirit of Aquinas, who did not think that the universe was infinite, but formulated his arguments to appeal to somebody who did, you know, mm-hmm. we can work on arguments that rely on evolution, and we can say, look, mm-hmm. I don't believe in evolution, but let, let, let's, let's give it to you. Okay, let's, let's just think about this, okay? A lot of evolutionists would say, well, evolution is a law. 
So you can go from that to, all right, so evolution is a law. What type of law is it? It's a law of nature, right? It's a law of nature. If it's a law of nature, isn't it highly unlikely that we would be here right now? Isn't that highly unlikely? And even as a law of nature, isn't the whole basis of the nature that it's a law of rely on uh, other laws of nature, other uniformities that are within a very fine um, fine tuning, a fine gap of variables where if it goes one way or another, we wouldn't be here at all? So if you start to argue it that way and, and you can use evolution as a launch pad into the fine-tuning argument for the existence of God and connect right. the laws of nature to evolution itself as the atheist conceives of evolution himself or herself, and you can use that as a platform to argue for the existence of God. So in, in a way, you can use evolution against atheism. Yeah, I remember uh, William Lane Craig. If you if you remember that debate he did with Frank Zindler, and uh, you know Zindler's a biologist, and he kept going to evolution, and so Craig did exactly that. He pointed to the fine tuning of the of the universe and the and the you know probability that life could uh, evolve in our in our universe, and said, man, if if evolution is true, then that would prove, you know, that that'd be an argument for the existence of mm-hmm. God. Again, folks, I'm not saying, you know, I'm, I'm not a, uh, I'm a young earth creationist of all things. So, uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, when people say, bring up these type of things like, well, if evolution is true somehow, you know, that um, refutes the existence of God, that is just, you know, biological evolution is like the, the fourth or fifth rung down the ladder, you know, that, that we have to deal with. So, it's like you say, it's just a, it's a red herring. So, yeah, ab- um, absolutely. Yeah, it, evolution doesn't explain why the universe is here at all. It doesn't explain these other things that you need God in order to explain. So by bunting to evolution, you're just taking a hot, hot button issue to to divert attention. Yeah, yeah. And that, I guess that would kind of lead into the the other arguments we could even use for God's existence, like from consciousness or morality. Um, mm-hmm. Or other type of things. Um, was there another argument or two you wanted to look at? We got about fifteen minutes. Yeah, let, let's take a look at the Kalam argument. Uh, you had mentioned that. Yeah. It uh, it originated with uh, medieval Islamic thinkers. It comes from the the height of uh, of Muslim culture, as a matter of fact, when the the best technology and the best thought and the highest academic achievements were all in the Arab world which is an interesting aspect of this whole thing. But in any case, the term means, um, kalam means to speak. So it, it's connected to the speaking of God and the speaking into existence. And it's a very simple argument. It's, it's got uh, two premises and a conclusion. So the first premise is everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause, and we would call the cause of the entire universe God. You know, and of course that fits with the, the biblical information of God being the creator. So when we're doing natural theology, we're not doing natural theology completely apart from the Bible either. So it, it's got to cohere with, with the biblical principles. Sure. 
So now there's another movement in this argument, and this is about infinite temporal regress. So you see, it goes, an infinite temporal regress of events would constitute an actual infinite. So if we look backward in time for an infinite amount of time, it would just keep going. And that an actual infinite cannot exist, therefore an infinite temporal regress of events cannot exist. So it's an argument, it's a philosophical argument against an infinite amount of time and an infinite universe. So of course then you can buttress this with natural science. So, um, and you can argue also further about this, but that, that's the Kalam argument in a nutshell right there. And he has different, uh, William Lane Craig has different arguments to support that. Like uh, one of the things that you'll often encounter when you're using the Kalam cosmological argument and you're talking about infinites, well, infinites are used in mathematics uh, quite often. So then people will say, well, math uses infinites and mathematicians can use it and it doesn't seem to be a problem there. Why is this an issue? Why, I, I can't picture why this is an issue. Well, the issue right. is, is not that infinites are not important or fallacious in some way, but if you take something from abstract mathematics where they work fine and you place it into a real actual world, you have some serious problems. So <clears throat> an example that William Lane Craig gives is um, Craig's library. So in Craig's library, he says, imagine a library with an infinite number of books. So if you take out, say, every odd number book, how many books do you still have in there? An infinite number of books. So now that seems a little bit odd, doesn't it? You know, if you take books out of a library, you know, it, it shouldn't equal the number of books still remaining in the library, or, or it, it, you know, it shouldn't equal the number that you take out shouldn't equal the number that are left and still have a library. So then there's an aspect of it where if you take every natural number and you catalog your books and use absolutely every natural number possible in an infinite number of books, you number every book, and let's say you've got some more books that you just got and you want to add them to your library. How do you add them to the library? You've already used every natural number. So with an infinite amount, you can always add to it, but if you're cataloging your books, you've used all, every single possible natural number, and if that's your system of cataloging, you can't add books to this library. That's, that's really absurd. In any library that we know of in any sort of real world, we can add and subtract books at will. We, we can always add more books to the library. So it, it's just a, you know, it's just ridiculous to think that you can have something that is actually infinite that still works in the real world. So, so, so that, that's one way that – what's that? It can be hard to wrap your brain around all that, can't it? Yeah, yeah, it can be. It can be difficult. So it's like, you know, in his examples, it's like if you, uh, if you shuffle some, some books around or, and try to move every odd book down a, a ways and renumber it, and um, it just leads to some absurdities. And 
And that's the exact issue. It's like you're trying to wrap your mind about, around it, and the very fact that you can't helps tell you that an actual infinite just simply doesn't work in a real world. And that's the whole point of the, of the matter. So another, um, another argument is that any sort of infinite temporal regress of events, um, it can't constitute an actual infinite. So a temporal series is added by successive addition. You have one moment, and you add another moment to it, and you add another moment, and you add another moment. But you'll never, if you have a starting point and you're adding, if you're adding at all, you will never reach some sort of infinity. So no collection that's formed by success, successive addition can end up being an actual infinite. So there's a difference. There's an actual infinite and a, and a, um, a potential infinite. A potential infinite is something that has a start or has one end that is, is a definite end and has the potential of, of keeping going. But it's not an actual infinite. It just can potentially keep going. It'll never be an actual infinite because you've already got one end. When you have an end locked down, really infinite just means unbounded. It means a group that has no boundary around it and uh, no ends to it. So once you admit that there's one end of something, you can't possibly have an actual infinite because you've already found one of the boundary marks. That's another way to look at it. So the very fact that there's a now means that there is not an actual infinite behind us. Does that make any sense at all? Absolutely does. Yeah, it is. It, it absolutely does. It's uh, it's powerful. It really is. Uh, you know what? We actually have a phone call. If uh, if you don't mind going to it, Bruce, we've got about seven minutes. Yeah, so sure, sure. Call, hello, caller. Can I get your name and, and where you're calling from? My name's Sam, and I'm calling from Abilene, Texas. How's it going? Hi Sam, how are you? I'm just got, got a question. Got a question or comment? Yeah, I wanted to ask Bruce a question about uh, about the about the inability of there to be uh, infinite regress or whatever. Okay. Um, if it's true that the fact that the past cannot be infinite entails that the universe had a beginning, why does it not entail that God had a beginning? Okay, that's a very good question. And um, the nature of the argument, anything that has a beginning has to have a, a cause. God doesn't have a beginning. You know, of course, that, you know, your whole question is about why doesn't God have to have a beginning? Well, that's part of the nature of the argument here is that you have to have a beginningless start in order to have everything get rolling. So the, the very fact that God is beginningless is, is what you need at one end of this whole thing is a, uh, or, or a God that is infinite in himself, eternal, is part of what you need in order to, to even get the entire now, world when you, when you say that God is infinite, you don't mean that, that God had a, that, that God's, past is infinite, do you? Because 
the argument implies that time itself had a beginning, right? That's right. That's right. So God, so God uh, a better term for right. go ahead. A better term for God would be eternal, which is something that is non-temporal at all. So okay. God doesn't rely on some sort of past or pre-existing time at all. Time is something that is created by God himself. Okay. So given the fact that time is finite in the past, yet that would imply that that even if God you know, had a timeless state prior to creation, I guess you can't say prior, but without creation, I guess that's what William Lane Craig says, um, God had this atemporal state, and then he became temporal while he created the universe. So God's mm-hmm. past is finite. God's temporal past is finite. So this argument, it sounds like um, it argues that time had a beginning, therefore mm-hmm. the universe had a beginning. But it sounds like what you're saying is the fact that time had a beginning does not imply that God did not have a beginning. So why does it imply that the universe had a beginning? you understand what I'm asking? Yeah, I, I think so. Why does? Yeah, you're saying you're saying it's possible for time to be finite in the past, yet God does not have a beginning. Mm-hmm. So, if it's possible for something to be beginningless, even though its past is finite, then then why do you say that the okay. universe? Well, that, that's because God, as creator of time itself, transcends time itself. God is not uh, time does not apply to God in the same way that it, apply, it applies to us. So God is the creator of time. He, God is not bound by time. All right? you, Anything... you, Bruce, you wouldn't agree with William Lane Craig, would you, uh, as far as God entering into time in creation, or would you? Well, I, I would agree that God is present to us within creation, but I, I would also say that uh, God is, is still eternal and changeless in the midst of being present to us in the So in do you the think that from God, God is atemporal, that he sort of exists in all times at the same time? Yeah, that, that's what I think. That's not what William okay. Lane Craig thinks. You know, right. he's the one developing the Kalam cosmological argument. Okay, so well... I, my question is really kind of geared towards the way Bill Craig um, presents his argument, so I guess it doesn't really apply to your to your okay. view. Yeah, well, well I think if, if uh, um, the Klam would work better with, with this sort of idea of, of God, but I, yeah, I think... Yeah, I would agree it, it does. It, it solves some problems, but it seems to me it creates other problems. You know, the whole notion of God being atemporal... Um, mm-hmm. That seems to have other difficulties, like, uh, you know, what, if God is atemporal, how can he actually do anything? How can he act? Or how can he have, you know, a relationship mm-hmm. with, you know, a, any kind of temporal thing without temporality being a real thing to him? Yeah, well, you know, it. there are answers to those objections, and um, it, you're getting to the core of what's called the doctrine of divine simplicity, which is this idea that God is, is simple in metaphysically in ways that the world around us is not. And there's been a lot of thought put into divine simplicity and what's called a saity, which is the unchanging nature of God. And, um, you know, I, I think we're running out of time, but just trust me that there are good answers seconds. to the, those 
sort of issues. But I, I think the base issue is that, um, you know, if God – let, let's, let's run with your objection a little bit and say, all right, what if God needed – God is in time, and let's say God needed some, something to explain why God exists, all right? Okay. So what would supply that? Another God? What would supply that? Another God? Maybe a turtle. <laughs> Maybe it's turtles all the way down, right? That's the objection. My objection yeah. is that God needs a creator. Um, my objection well, had to do with – well, my objection doesn't really apply to your view. It applies to Bill Craig's view. But my yeah, view well, was I, why, you know, how to, do you – go ahead. Well, what I'm trying to say is that what, what you're criticizing is that if God is in time – why does God get out of the Kalam argument itself? That is that your your question? Well, it has more to do with how you make this distinction between God and the universe, where you argue that because time had a beginning, oh, yeah. therefore the universe had a beginning. However, the fact that time had a beginning does not imply that God had a beginning. So on the one hand, you're saying that if something is finite in the past, it must have had a beginning. But on the other hand, you're saying it's possible for something to be finite in the past and not have a beginning. Well, so see, with God, God transcends time. So God doesn't have a beginning in the beginning. Does that make any sense at all? Right. I That's mean, why I say that the objection applies to Craig's view. It does not apply to your view, because in Craig's view, God is temporal. Right, right. right. But you see, in Craig's view, and I, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to muster a defense of Craig here, is what I'm trying to do. In okay. Craig's view, Craig would not say that God is subject to time in the same way that the universe itself is subject to time. God is creator. The creation-creator relationship keeps the creator and the creature uh, separate. So God is never going to be identified with the universe itself. God is mm -hmm. going to always be transcendent. When God steps into time, it's not because God is subject to time, which is God's own creation. It's because right. God wishes to be in relationship with what he has created. Right. Well, from what I understand, it's because Craig uh, subscribes to an A theory of time, where time itself is actually moving forward. The only thing that exists right now is the present. God has mm -hmm. a relationship with the present. Tomorrow you know, a new day will exist, and God will have a relationship with that. So from mm -hmm. God's point of view, time is constantly changing. So that's God's mm -hmm. relationship with time. So if God has any kind of relationship with the universe, he would have to experience time. Yeah, that's Do right. It. That's Craig's, that is yeah. Craig's view. Cla yeah, that, cla that. classical theism, that's where we love. Classical theism does a lot of uh, answers, I think, a lot of those objections. Mm -hmm. But, gentlemen, we are two minutes over time. Sam, you're all All right, well, thanks for uh, taking my call. Hey, call in next week. We'll have Shannon Guthrie and, and uh, be doing more stuff on Christians and philosophy. Bruce, I want to thank you again for being on the show. I think we're going to have you back uh, in January to do actually a show on this, on Divine Simplicity. And maybe some Always of the a other pleasure, Danny. So thank I you very much. I appreciate you coming on, and right. uh, we'll have you back on. Sounds good. All right, my friend. Thank you. All right. Bye. God bless. All right, so okay. until next week, folks, we will uh, be back with Shandon Guthrie, and uh, we are going to be looking at the Christian and philosophy, and, you know, you don't want to miss it, I promise you. Until next week, God bless.
Yeah. Mic check. Mic check. One, two, one, two, one, two for you. Yeah. <laughs> you saying? Word up. That. Biblical, biblical, theology, theology, study, the person of God, attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet, so please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology, that phrase alone that gives some people allergy. Uh, they say it's not practical enough, uh-huh. just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication. A work of art from Genesis to Revelation. From God's creation to man's fall to redemption to